Well, there were two men in a certain city. The one was rich and the other poor. The rich man had great flocks, many herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little baby lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up in his house. It slept in his bed and it ate off his plate. It was to him and to his children as a daughter. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, I admit, it's easy to hear this story and think it is about somebody else. And I know that because you're not the first person to think this story is about somebody else. This story, the prophet Nathan spoke to King David after his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah came to light. And David's response to the story is found in 2 Samuel 12. David's anger was greatly kindled against the rich man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan responds to him, You are the man. David's response in the brokenness of his heart a few verses later is, I have sinned against the Lord. David's unique sin against Bathsheba, Uriah, Joab, the army of Israel, the people of God, he identifies directly as a sin against God. And those particulars, even David principalizes for us today in Psalm 51. So would you turn in the scriptures to Psalm 51. It's one of seven penitential psalms. Penance meaning repentance. And so this psalm is one in which the psalmist or the songwriter is confessing sin. And I believe that today as we work through the scriptures, you will see that God is merciful to the sinner who confesses, bringing life to the sinner and praise to God. In fact, the big idea of the psalm, I believe, is that God is merciful to sinners who confess. And God restores life to the sinner and brings praise to God. So would you look with me at the first two verses in which David appeals to the character and the mercy of God. This is Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. These two verses form a preface to the rest of the psalm in which there are three triads. 
signifying that David's acknowledgement of his sin is in its totality, and his acknowledgement of his plea, his plea itself, is a total plea, and his appeal to God is for complete grace and complete mercy to meet him. There are three offenses, three words he uses to describe his offense against God. The first is transgression, which really is a willful violation of a norm or standard, the willful breach of trust. It could be pictured as a fist raised against God's standard. The second is iniquity, which is really the most holistic term because it it refers both to the crime as well as to the resulting guilt and shame. Picture it as twisting something that was supposed to be straight a warping or diverging or deviating from a standard. And then the third word he uses, which is the one we're most familiar with, sin, means to miss a mark, to fall short, or a disqualifying offense. You could picture it as reaching, uh, jumping to reach a bar and then being disqualified for falling short of it. David recognizes that his offense against God and God alone, is complete. And he acknowledges in the preface the full weight of his willful disregard, deviating from the standard, and his failure to meet God's demands. Now every time there is sin, throughout Scripture, and in our lives, there is also defilement, an impurity, a stain, something that needs cleansing in order to be made right with God again. And David's pleas are calls to God to blot out, to wash, and to cleanse. The recognition is that sin, is the effect of sin is both punishment and the stain upon the human heart. So David's request is not merely for a legal forgiveness or justification to be made right with God, but also for a cleansing to be washed of the shame, to be washed of the fear, to be washed of his own defilement, and for his conscience to be cleansed in order to praise and worship God as he is designed to. And these three pleas are appealed to three attributes of God. His grace, his steadfast love and abundant mercy. David, is it's as though he is standing at the bottom of the well, looking up at the stars, shining. And he sees grace and love and mercy coming to meet him in his despair. That first phrase could be also translated, be gracious to me according to your steadfast or covenant love and according to your abundant mercy. These attributes are particularly meaningful because in Psalm 50, in the, in the cosmic courtroom with the heavens and the earth as witnesses, righteousness and justice are the preeminent attributes of God displayed. As he announces his allegation against his people, And perhaps even just last Sunday you were faced with your own guilt and the weight of God's accusation. 
And what you need to spare you from the wrath and judgment of God is the mercy of God. Psalm 51 also follows Psalm 50 fittingly because it provides now the sinner a means of confession toward reconciliation with the God who has called the heavens and earth to account. David acknowledges that there is nothing he can do about his sin. He can't fix what has been broken. He can't undo what has been done. He is exclusively at the mercy of God. St. Augustine, deeply influenced by Psalm 51 in his famous work, The Confessions, wrote this. Every day, my conscience makes confession relying on the hope of your mercy as more to be trusted than its own innocence. And David is acknowledging that it is better, he trusts the mercy of God more than his ability to make himself right, than his justification for his behavior, or even than the innocence of his own conscience. So right out of the gate... The wholeness of sin is met by the wholeness of God's activity in cleansing and forgiving out of the wholeness of God's grace and love and mercy. David knows that God's merciful. And in his guilt knows that this mercy is not going to be just magically applied to him. But rather, God is merciful toward the sinner who confesses. A confession can really simply be understood as agreement with God about my sin. Fundamentally. It's not an apology, per se, where uh, we come to God as perhaps a child who has hurt another child and say, God, I'm really sorry. Um, I promise I'll never do it again. Uh, I'm really sorry. It was fun, but I'm really sorry. And confession does not allow room for excuse. You'll notice in David's confession, there's not a line of excuse And it's not a rote ritual. It's not a magical pixie dust that's applied to get mercy. Instead, confession comes from a humble brokenness of heart that agrees with God about His holiness, agrees with God about the offense itself, agrees with God about the nature of the sinner, and agrees with God about the need for mercy. So in Psalm 51, David particularly confesses two things, his moral failure and his moral impotence. He continues in verse 3, look with me. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I know my transgressions, I have sinned and I know it. And I can't escape it. I can't hide from it, I can't run away from it. It's ever before me. There's a word for this, um, this imagery of, or this feeling of the guilt that is associated with a sin that you can't escape. The word is compunction. Compunction leads to the healing and the bright sorrow of one's interpersonal sinful status, without which Christianity is just a, a ritual, a formal religion. And it's originally, compunction is originally a medical term that's used to describe the wound caused by a prick of a thorn or another sharp object. 
It's used metaphorically in Acts 2 when Peter claims that the fellow Israelites that they had crucified Jesus whom God had made both Lord and Messiah and it says they were pricked to the heart. They could not escape the reality of their sin. They felt their sin in its full weight. And David continues his confession in verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Confession, agreeing with God about your sin, recognizes and acknowledges that all sin is an offense directly aimed at God. This psalm's not a prayer for reconciliation between people. It's not a peacemaking psalm, per se. Those wronged by David's sin are, I think he perceives it this way, they're real. His offense to them is real. But as he zooms out of his own solar system and he sees the weight of his offense against God as cosmically understood, he must deal with this. He must be made right before God. His sin is relatively, exclusively against God. And we like to rank sins. We, uh, per, perhaps you hate to rank sins, but you implicitly do. And you put them in categories of goodness to badness of sins. Usually we rank them by their collateral damage to others. And I think that's opposite of the point that David is making in his confession. When he says against you and you only have I sinned, he's saying regardless of how many people this has damaged my sin must be dealt with. My sin is serious because it's a rebellion that separates me from God. He continues in verse 4 by saying, So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, if confession is an admission that, in, in agreement with God about my sin, it is an admission that God is right, that He is right to hate sin, that He is right in whatever judgment He pronounces. I've sinned against you and you only. Do with me as you please. You will be righteous. You will be just in whatever you decree. More than merely confessing David's personal failure, he confessed his own moral impotence or inability, the internal conflict that wages war within him. Look at verses 5 and 6. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David is also aware, not merely of his behavior of sin, but of his nature of sin. Meaning that from birth, he has been against God. And yet, in the secret places, in the womb, God has spoken truth and wisdom. 
So an image bearer of God, knowing truth, which God loves, knowing the wisdom of God, yet born with a sinful nature, he's acknowledging and confessing the internal struggle of his soul. It's the same struggle that we all share, the same struggle that Israel felt in Sinai, the same struggle that Paul feels with his thorn, where he did what he resolved not to do, and he did not do what he wanted to do. He had sinned against the God-given moral knowledge of conscience and despised God's word. From within. This confession is an acknowledgement that within him lies conflicting realities. The reality of his own sinful nature and the reality of God's desire of truth and wisdom in him. His confession states, I knew better. His confession is one of guilt. A confession naturally forms a petition. In this case, David's petition, I believe, is for life to be restored to him. Life as it was meant to be lived. Life connected to God in relationship with Him. Life in the freedom from guilt and shame and fear. Life following and yielding Himself to the Spirit's control in Him. So God is merciful to the sinner who confesses, bringing life to the sinner. Look with me at verses 7 through 14. As David makes his petition... Again, three times, in three ways, David pleads for cleansing and forgiveness. He begins in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. He says, purge me. Literally, de-sin me. Remove the tumor of sin Within me. Purge me with hyssop. Okay? We've sung about hyssop this morning. That's weird. To confess that no bleeding bird, no bleeding beast, no hyssop branch, and no priest can wash away my sin but only the blood of Jesus. And that is an image that alludes back to the first Passover. When God's people in Egypt were commanded to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood and brush it on the doorpost of their house with a hyssop branch. Additionally, it comes up later in the law by sprinkling the blood of the leper's house and the person defiled by a corpse. The picture is that of atonement. Something has died and bled in order to pay for or cover sin. These atoning sacrifices that the hyssop branch represents, even in David's prayer, foreshadow the sacrifice of Christ. And David expresses his faith in God's sacrificial system, in this, in this plan for atonement. And he says, I will be clean. This, I think, is one of the things that Paul's referencing in Romans 3 when He identifies that the judgment on David was postponed and placed on Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, 
who takes away the sin of the world. His, his petition for forgiveness and cleansing continues in verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. We talk about the Psalms as being poetry, even a song, and we're, we're analyzing song lyrics here. But this is strong poetic language here. How many of you have heard joy? Joy is not something that you hear. Joy is something that you maybe feel. Maybe you experience it. And David's prayer is for joy to so encompass him that it becomes this whole experience of joy and delight and restoration as God forgives him. And continue, let the bones you've broken rejoice. The story that I read a moment ago, there's, there were no bones broken. This is not a physical snapping of a bone. No, but God has broken David's spiritual bones, his emotional bones, to bring him to this place of confession. Immediately in, in 2 Samuel 12, after Nathan tells David, you are the man, God speaks. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and, the, and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. In that moment, David is not hearing joy. And he is not hearing gladness, but his bones are being crushed. And his prayer now is for that experience of God's accusation against him, which is right to be forgiven, that his bones themselves might be healed and rejoice. He continues with his third request for forgiveness in verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. So the sin which is ever before David, inescapable, he is now pleading that God would hide his face from his sin. Asking God to avert his gaze, dissolving his relationship to sin and so not punishing it. And here David repeats the imagery of verse 1, blot out all my iniquities, but he qualifies it and quantifies it with the word all, concluding in some sense the fullness of his confession, all of it. The stuff that's outside of me, the stuff that's happened to me, the stuff that I've done, the stuff that is within me, all of it, blot it out. The tone of the psalm 
dramatically changes at this moment. The penitential psalm doesn't merely ask for forgiveness and cleansing, but now also for spiritual renewal, for life to be restored in all of its fullness. Again, three times and in three ways, David prays for spiritual renewal. Look at verse 10, perhaps the most famous verse in this psalm. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You remember the first story in the scriptures that God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, chaotic. And God spoke and created order and life where there was none. David here is asking for God to speak into his own the chaos and the turmoil of his own heart and bring life where there has been none. He's not merely asking for the behavior to be corrected, but for the soul, the self, the spirit to be renewed. For out of the spirit, he recognizes that all of his behaviors come. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Renew a right spirit within me. And he continues with the second plea for spiritual renewal. In verse 11, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now two images here. The first of casting away from your presence. You might be reminded of the story of Cain in Genesis 4 when God kicks him out of the garden and casts him away from his presence. The first thing that Cain feels away from God is fear. What is anyone? I have no protection. I am isolated, alone. I will be hunted for my sin. David says, don't, don't cast me out. And he pleads, take not your Holy Spirit from me. David has been uniquely filled with the Holy Spirit for the task of being God's anointed king over his people. And his fear of the removal of the Holy Spirit is justified. Because David sits on the throne that once belonged to Saul. Saul, whose the Holy Spirit came upon him when he was anointed as king. Saul, who he remembers, David remembers, sinned against the Lord, committing sacrifices that were not his to perform, and the Holy Spirit being removed from Saul. And David remembers that the rest of Saul's reign was powerless, lifeless, and hopeless. So when David prays, take not your Holy Spirit from me. He means it. He wants to continue to reign in God's power over God's people. Now that's a, that's a valid translation. Take not your Holy Spirit, or literally the, the spirit of holiness. 
Be careful not to equate that with the, the Holy Spirit who now in the New Covenant regenerates and fills you. The Holy Spirit could be removed from David. He was sent for a specific purpose. To New Covenant people, the Holy Spirit has been made new and alive within you. You are filled with the Spirit. In fact, in your sin, it is the Spirit who is whispering, you're a child of God. In your moment of weakness, it is the Spirit who strengthens and encourages and calls you to repent. So it's important to recognize that while the Holy Spirit will not depart from us, we can, by sin, quench and suppress the Holy Spirit, rendering Him ineffective in our lives, lifeless. When we sin, we're kicking the the Holy Spirit off the throne of our lives and saying, I look around in my little kingdom and I could be a pretty good king and I kind of want to do this right now. This is not the means to flourishing. It's a deception that you'll be a better king than the Holy Spirit in your life. So who is on the throne of your life? Have you submitted to to the Holy Spirit or has He functionally been removed from you? Are you living a powerless Christian life? David's third prayer for spiritual renewal is in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The third prayer for spiritual renewal is a prayer for restoration. For the news of God's salvation, not merely to be news outside and out there, but for it to be real to David. And for a spirit that now willingly walks, willingly yields to God's way. Not begrudgingly, not reluctantly, not making excuses, but one that submits to God's rule in his life. And so in essence... David's prayer is not that God will simply deal with his sin, but that God will renew his life as a spirit-filled person. And as a result of this spiritual renewal, David makes two promises to God in verses 13 and 14. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. The goal of God to reconcile all things to himself is rooted in sinners who confess, who find in the mercies of God renewed life. The goal of God to be delighted in or worshipped is rooted in the renewed life that God brings to sinners who confess. David further illustrates the effect that this spiritual renewal will have in his life and in the life of God's people as it results now in both personal praise and corporate praise to God. Look with me at verses 15 through 19. David says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Now immediately following Psalm 50, there's almost no need to comment on these lines. For you know, having been here last week, that God is not after your sacrifice. He is not after the ritual of your religion, but is after your heart. 
your whole being lived in right response to who God is and what he's done. For ritual without repentance is useless. But something has happened here that I think is significant. A few verses ago, in 13, David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. When you restore me, I'll begin to teach. I'll begin to preach. I will call people back to you. And in verse 17, the direction of the psalm, for this, the whole time it's been between David and God, and now it turns outward. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a contrite heart. As though David's restoration has begun, and he begins now to preach of this reconciliation that can be made possible to God through a right sacrifice. God's doing something in David's life and in his heart, bringing purpose where there was no purpose, and power where there was no power, and life where there was no life. David is preaching what he practices. All of Psalm 51 comes from this broken spirit, the broken and contrite heart which God does not despise. Now David's renewal results also in the praise of God from the people of God. In verse 18, he continues his petition. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure and build up the walls of Jerusalem. David's sin did not merely affect him. It affected the nation. As a husband, your sin does not merely affect you, but also your wife. As a father, also your children. Viewing the psalm holistically then, one can say that its message to the people of God is that the walls of Zion, which are representative of the kingdom of God, can only be built up by penitent sinners. The penitent openly and truly confess their sin and trust their merciful God to forgive their sin through Christ's sacrifice and to cleanse their conscience through his Holy Spirit. Then the conclusion of David's psalm is in verse 19. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. As David has personally experienced now this renewal and praise of God, so will the nation. Right worship of God will take place from right hearts for God. Augustine preached a sermon on Psalm 51, likely in the year 411, to Christians who, he said, are yet running off after empty things and lying foolishness, careless of their primary vocation. It is one thing when a person who does not know what to avoid but goes running after these empty pleasures, but quite another when one disregards the voice of Christ in order to do so. His call to his people was the stories about you. You're the rich man. Your sin is against God. Every time, regardless of its impact on other people, every time you sin in any of the the 
threefold manifestations of transgression or iniquity. Any time it is an offense against God and it requires cleansing. And so, as a church, we admit that this place is not a museum for the perfect. But it's a hospital for the broken. We admit that we haven't arrived. That the Spirit of God is in us and we quench Him daily. That we think that we're going to live this life that God has called us to without His power in us. And so confession now in the church becomes and is to be an ongoing spiritual discipline. In Psalm 51, we have a description of what it looks like, as well as, I think, a template for this discipline. But more than just a template, Psalm 51 is good news. Psalm 51 is a message of good news. Because God is merciful to the sinner who confesses and brings life to the sinner and prays to God. For David, this good news is evident. Because God proclaims to him through Nathan, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. God in his mercy has heard David's confession, spared him, brought him life, and renewed him. And to us this morning, the scriptures are full of good news to us. Because all have sinned. All of us have sinned. And the wages of sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And the promise is sure, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter to the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. These are the words of the Lord to you. Because in confidence, you can approach God appealing to His mercy, confessing sin, trusting that He will make you right and new and bring praise again to Himself. Your relationship with God is not one to be characterized by guilt or fear or shame. Instead, by an intimacy with God, a closeness with God that feels deeply the weight of sin as well as the gravity of grace.
I want to give you just another moment of silence this morning to consider, to reflect on these words. And Psalm 51 is a template for confession in your life. Because perhaps when you walked in this morning, you heard Nathan's story and you said, yeah, that guy probably deserves to die. And you thought it was about someone else. A confession was for other people. But perhaps now, like David, you have been cut to the heart. Recognizing that your sin is always before you. And that is it is against God alone. Now, if this is the first time that you've paused to consider your sin and your need for mercy, you need to know that this is good news for everyone. Jesus is ready to save you. The Spirit is ready to fill you. And your prayers of confession now are confession of a categorical kind. I want to shift from being in Adam, where I'm my own king, to being in Christ, where he's the king of my life. I need a shift from being a slave to sin, always doing what sin requires of me, to being a, a slave to righteousness, where I now find life in the freedom that Christ gives. Ask God for that kind of transformation in your life. So over the, for the next two minutes, spend time confessing, Appeal to God's mercy, confess sin, agreeing with God about it, ask God to restore you and cleanse you, and then together with one voice, we will all sing praise to God. Let me pray for you as we enter this time. Holy Spirit, as we've already prayed this morning, search our hearts. Bring to mind any sin that hinders our relationship with God and diminishes the power of your work in our lives. Father, we plead that you would be merciful to us, satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus. Please, would you hear us and receive the sacrifice of our broken hearts?